the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. When I entered, men crowded around, tried to lift me to their shoulders. They were too weak. Many of them could not get out of bed. As I walked down to the end of the barracks, there was applause from the men too weak to get out of bed. It sounded like the hand clapping of babies. As we walked out into the courtyard, a man fell dead. Two others, they must have been over 60, were crawling towards the latrine. I saw it, but will not describe it. There's Edward R. Murrow reporting for CBS News on the liberation of Buchenwald. That camp, like so many across Eastern Europe and Germany, was constructed by the gentleman who was the focus, I'm using that term loosely, the person who was the focus of this new book, The Hidden Nazi, The Untold Story of America's Deal with the Devil. And with us today is Dean Reuter. Dean, um, certainly it's shocking to think that somebody who played such a pivotal role in not just providing slave labor to build the munitions that were used against the Allies, um, to oversee the continuing development of the V-1 and V-2 rocket program, jet aircraft development, but then, worst of all, the design and construction of the Nazi concentration camps, and to think that, essentially, he was never brought to trial. What was the notion here? I mean, any evidence to suggest that he was used as maybe an informant who who assisted the Allies in developing the case that uh, was brought against the other Nazi war criminals at Nuremberg? I mean, is there any way to sort of attach some sort of logic to this? So that's a great question. And, you know, we, we did find some evidence that, you know, we know he surrendered to the U.S. Army. He faked his own suicide and surrendered to the U.S. Army. We have documents that prove that. We had him, meaning the U.S. Army, had him in custody for at least 10 months, after which there's an extradition request from Great Britain um, and a note in the file saying there's no objection to his extradition request. And then the paper trail just runs cold. There's nothing after that in terms of a meaningful document on Hans Kammler. We could tell that during that period, uh, he was being interrogated in northern Austria about missing money. Uh, He was... uh, at Konstein, that which was the central, uh, the second location for the rocket team, uh, and we think he was there helping to identify rocket scientists that could be exported to the United States. And let's mention, by the way, when you refer to missing money, there was actually kind of a, a, a shadow government of some surviving Nazi leaders that were hoping, once everything settled down after the war, to be able to come back in and essentially uh, construct a, what should we call it, sort of a Fourth Reich. Yeah, we cover that in the book, and that's a fascinating sort of thread in this story. There was a, a meeting of German uh, high government officials, uh, army officials, SS officials, and German industrialists in the fall of 1944, and the, the Germans were ordered to offshore all their assets, take all their gold, all their um, technology, and put it into companies outside of Germany. 
uh, with the particular purpose being that uh, they would preserve that for after uh, the war. You can you don't have to go very back far back in history to to remember in World War One there was this calamitous, embarrassing defeat of Germany, and yet uh, a few years later it rose again. Uh, it came to dominance in Europe. Uh, it, it occupied, after and during World War II, it occupied more territory than it ever took over, than it ever conquered in World War I. So the idea that it could fail again and yet be resurgent is not that far-fetched. Um, and it's um, obvious, I think, that, that that sort of regime would plan for its own resurgence. Uh, and we found lots of evidence that they did. And there, we also found, interestingly, a 1953 CIA report that I don't think anybody's ever seen um, that talks about the numbers of Germans in South America, the number of scientists, the amount of technology, the amount of wealth down there, the German Chamber of Commerce, German restaurants. Uh, and this report reads like an alarm bell um, in terms of a possible Fourth Reich. Well, and I have uh, traveled quite extensively throughout uh, South America, and repeatedly so, and I will tell you the number of German and Italian surnames that you find down there, who all seem to have sort of appeared on the scene uh, at the close of World War II, is is quite telling. Right. Give but, us... But in, term, in terms of the logic, to get back to your original question, um, is there... Uh, we didn't... We found evidence that uh, Kemmler was being interrogated for 10 months... Uh, he ended up near Nuremberg, so it's quite possible that he was giving testimony that was useful to the prosecutors uh, in the great trial after the war. Uh, but I think the only way to explain him getting assistance from the United States is what he delivered, and that is the rocket team uh, that really got the United States on the moon, uh, helped win the Cold War for us, uh, you know, was directly related to the development of the ICBM. Uh, our ability to deliver a uh, nuclear weapon around the world. Uh, so, you know, that gave us a 10 or 12 year head start on the on the Russians. And, you know, if the Americans didn't have that, uh, history would would be vastly different, I think. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I, I think what's difficult here to, to reason with and to justify is the notion that somebody who played such a high-level, pivotal role in the events that unfolded throughout um, Germany and uh, and Europe, um, and to think that he essentially, in exchange for information and contacts and secrets, was basically able to get away. Can we call it scot free? I mean, how did how did he ultimately live out his life? Well, that's a question that we can't answer. Um, and you know, there's there's at least some possibility his life ended uh, ten or twelve months after the war. That the Americans were done with him, uh, he could have died in custody, and there's no report of that. Uh, he could have been given to Great Britain, and there might have been a secret trial, and he was hanged. Um, that would be, you know, extraordinary, uh, unprecedented. I've never heard of that before. Um, but we spin out a couple of different scenarios at the end of the book. The most likely of which is that he. Um, went to South America. I was going to say, yeah, is it on, beyond the pale that he, he wound up under an assumed identity living in Argentina somewhere? Not beyond the pale at all. Wow. And we, we deem that to be the most likely scenario because uh, there's evidence of other instances of that happening. Uh, a few of them are very particular cases that we came upon um, that were documented uh, 40 years after the war in the 1980s. These cases were documented by the U.S. Department of Justice uh, when Klaus Barbie, 
the Butcher of Lyon, was found down in South America and brought back and tried by the French. He had, it was learned, that only then it was learned that he'd been used by the United States as an intelligence asset for years after the war. The French wanted him. He'd already been tried in absentia and given a capital sentence, so he was due to hang. We're still using him as an intelligence asset. Um, and when the French really turned up the heat that we got to have it, we shipped him off to uh, Argentina, Bolivia, actually, to South America. Um, and this was all discovered in the 1970s and 1980s and then documented by uh, the U.S. Department of Justice. And the same Army CIC people that are signing the paperwork for Klaus Barbie, the Butcher of Lyon, were signing the paperwork for Hans Kalmler. So it's not a smoking gun, but it's a very strong parallel case. Final question for you. It's a fascinating book, and anyone who was interested in understanding more about some of the checkered history of World War II. This is a book for you called The Hidden Nazi, The Untold Story of America's Deal with the Devil. I have to wonder, and and I realize this is largely a rhetorical question, but Dean, I'm curious, if the likes of somebody like Simon Wiesenthal would have known that the Americans would have allowed somebody who played such a pivotal role in the final solution that essentially, potentially, as your research suggests, he got away with it. How do you think somebody like Wiesenthal would have responded? It's, it's unknowable, but I think they'd have to be highly disturbed. I mean, the, the people that were the Nazi hunters, and we did have contact in, in doing our research. We reached out to so many different people, including the, the U.S. Department of Justice Office of Special Investigations, which is the our Nazi hunting team, the Mossad, uh, and the Wiesenthal Center, uh, to find out if they had tracked uh, Hans Kammler. And they, to paraphrase their response, we had to go after living people. We had limited resources. We didn't chase Hans Kammler. He's dead. Um, had they known he was alive, as I said, I think he would have been number one on their list. So I think they would have been pretty unforgiving um, if they thought that their number one person, the number one most wanted person, uh, walked away. Undoubtedly so. A fascinating read. Pick up a copy of The Hidden Nazi, The Untold Story of America's Deal with the Devil, newly published by Regnery Press, and our thanks to its principal author, Dean Reuter, for being with us. 617, we get you caught up on traffic right now. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We know that from Scripture we are made in the very image of God and that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so you look at these connections and wonder to yourself, just how deep do they go? And by that, I mean, when we talk about our relationship with God, we certainly understand it. We relate to it on the spiritual plane. But does it go deeper than that? Journalist Rob Mole joins us now. He's written a new book, called What Your Body Knows About God, How We Are Designed to Connect, Serve, and Thrive. He has written uh, extensively on this topic, um, particularly related to health and health care issues. He's also editor-at-large with Christianity Today. You've also read his work, no doubt, in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere. And he serves as communications officer to the president of World Vision. And, Rob, great to have you on the program. Well, thank you, Craig. It's great to be here. It would seem at a certain level that the notion of there being a deeper connectivity with God would be a logical one. I mean, given the fact that he uh, breathed very life into us and that we are made in his image. That's right. That's exactly where I was about to go, was to talk about that image in Genesis where 
God forms the human being, forms Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathes into him the breath of life. So uh, certainly we are spirit and flesh, and our faith, our spirituality, our connections to God do not, are not do not just exist in a kind of ethereal plane, but they they go down to into who we are as as uh, physical beings, as uh, part of God's good creation. There have been some interesting studies done, and we frequently heard this from physicians, and, and not those with an agenda. And I put that disclaimer in there because some eavesdropping on our conversation tonight, Rob might say, well, yeah, sure, these are Christian doctors, so they're primed to prove a point. No, physicians who, who make no claim to any sort of uh, religious affiliation whatsoever, but will say that they notice something unique and different about the patients who are praying patients, and that is that the recovery rate seem to be better. Survival rates following uh, significant surgeries, things of this sort seem to be better. Attitudes seem to be better. There seems to be a marked connectivity between the health of one's body and one's relationship or connectivity to God. In any of your research, have you seen that borne out in any sort of a, a deeper scientific fashion? Well, you know, a survey of uh, HMO executives found that 94% of them believe that prayer helps medical treatment and speeds recovery of patients. Uh, something like 80% or higher of uh, doctors say the same thing. Uh, I think that the, these people, you know, and I was a, I was a hospice volunteer myself, and, and you, don't, you don't get around people who are dealing with physical illnesses who aren't also in search of um, in search of something greater, and those who have that connection uh, connection to God, who are able to um, draw on that uh, deep well of faith, they're able to they're able to often deal with those illnesses in a much more productive way, and often that means that uh, literally you can measure their immune systems, and that has an effect. They're they're able to respond to disease in healthier ways. People who go to church tend to tend to live longer. People who um, are engaged in spiritual practices do. One researcher at uh, Duke University found, or he estimated, that the effects of not going to church, uh, the effects of the lack of spiritual, uh, lack of, uh, spiritual involvement, was a- as unhealthy for people as smoking a pack of cigarettes every day for 40 years. Wow. Now we we certainly can can talk about connectivity uh, of, of the body's positive reaction to positive experiences. There are experiences that help help to release serotonin, and we feel better. We have a sense of being uplifted. Things of of this sort. Have we seen some scientific connection then in that arena in terms of um, involvement in spiritual life? I'm talking about things like prayer, like praise and worship. I mean, I would imagine if from a biblical perspective, we are designed, created in his image, and to serve and worship him, that it would almost uh, go without saying that the body would have some kind of a mechanism that uh, that positively reacts when we're connecting with God at that level. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the newest and among the most successful treatments of people with depression is prayer, simple prayer. Uh, now, that doesn't mean... Uh, Pray a few times, and and Jesus will heal you uh, right away. But it does mean that you know we tend to go immediately to the, the sort of pharmaceutical uh, 
uh, area in order to treat these things. But uh, one of the most common prescriptions now is for people to, to turn to prayer, and it's effective, uh, and it works. And it works because prayer is literally healthy for your brain. It's good for your brain for you to be engaged in a spiritual pursuit, uh, gaining uh, a sense of purpose and meaning in your life. Uh, it's healthy for your brain to be contemplating God and spend some time uh, meditating over Scripture, spend some time thinking of all that uh, Jesus, uh, especially at this time of year, came to to uh, be a human being on our earth. We can consider all the things that he did, he did, and when we spend some time in that sort of contemplation, it's incredibly healthy for our brain. Have scientists taken the time Rob, to, um, uh, to watch the way the brain reacts or responds to, um, for example, a praise and worship experience. I know that when I go into church and there is a, a rousing time of praise and worship, um, it, it, it uplifts your spirit, whatever troubles that you might have carried into the church with you from the week behind you uh, seem to just sort of melt away and and you you definitely feel as if you've made a connection with God. I would wonder if scientists have ever taken the time to be able to study the brain and see what's going on at that time when people are experiencing that that worshipful connection with God. Yeah, they sure have. And uh, one study, uh, almost jokingly, said uh, when people are in worship, it's as though they're uh, addicted to drugs. Uh, one of the natural brain chemicals is oxytocin, and uh, heroin actually mimics that. Uh, and so you get, a, in a sense, according to uh, the researchers, um, you get a sense of this spiritual high. You are... Um, you're with all of these people. There's a, there's a social aspect there. Uh, you're with people that you know, people that you care about, people that you see week to week, maybe throughout the week. And that gives you a sense of uh, th- this uh, social uplift. And then connecting to, connecting to God in, in that kind of environment, it's a unique thing. And, and uh, one of the ways that our brains are involved is through the, through the production and reception of oxytocin. Uh, it's a it's a normal uh, brain chemical that helps us to to sort of feel uplifted and um, and that seems to be one way that that our brains are designed to have that special feeling of connection to God. You know, God works in the, through physical means all all the time when He works in our lives, and in that moment, uh, that uh, that uh, little boost of oxytocin is one of those ways. Yeah, it's interesting. During this holiday season, so often we hear reports of people getting uh, deeper in depression. They maybe have lost a loved one during this time of the year, so it's a, it's a difficult time for them. We see higher rates of suicide amongst individuals during the holiday season. What a wonderful message of encouragement for people to understand that a relationship with Jesus Christ goes uh, well beyond not just God's concern for our our relationship to him and the afterlife, but even God's concern toward how we are doing here on earth in the here and now, and that the benefits of that personal one-on-one relationship with him go so deep and so wonderfully connected that it can change and elevate even our mood and and, uh, the way we feel about ourselves. With us today is Rob Mole. 
His book is called What Your Body Knows About God, How We Are Designed to Connect, Serve, and Thrive. We'll take a time out and come back to more of our visit as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Think for a moment about the feelings that you first had when you first met your spouse, for example. Uh, there, there was something that happened deep inside of you. There was a connectivity that occurred. We are wired for intimacy, and our bodies react to it when, it, when it's right. It stands to reason, therefore, that in that same sense in which the physical part of us reacts to uh, a loved one, there is that same sense of the way in which our body reacts to intimacy with God. We are, after all, created in very God's image. I've always been fascinated by the passage early on in Jeremiah where God speaks of having known Jeremiah while he was yet in his mother's womb. And so with that thought in mind, we're exploring this topic today of what our body knows about God. And with us today is um, author and journalist uh, Rob Mole. And and Rob, toward that end, I guess it stands to reason as much as we we see that wonderful release of all those positive chemicals that go on in the brain when we're when we're close to our uh, our spouse, when we're intimate with our spouse, same thing is true then I guess of God. Yeah, it sure is. I mean, when when researchers put uh, put someone into a, a brain scanner, it seems kind of sacrilegious to stick someone into a, a big machine and then and then tell them to pray. But we can find out some really interesting things when when that happens. And one of the interesting things is that the brain is working in this in this unique way. It's uh, different than if you were having another kind of emotional experience. So they looked at people remembering uh, fond uh, fond memories of uh, of friendship, feeling perhaps even the closest sorts of friendships that they've ever had, and remembering special moments. and And then they looked at those people remembering special moments with God and what that looked like in the brain. And, and they're actually really different things. The brain's doing something different, but not something unusual or not something that the brain isn't designed to do. Uh, and one of the fascinating things is as we, as we get closer to God and as we use our brain in this way to contemplate and, and meditate and pray to God, the brain is actually enhancing its uh, its senses of compassion, sort of the brain muscles around compassion and social awareness. So, as we as we grow in our love for God, we actually grow in our love for other people. So, as you as you mentioned, you know, as we connect with people, we're also connecting with God. As we connect with God, we're also connecting with people. When you were writing this book in the middle of this project, um, your wife went through a pretty difficult experience, um, which I, I guess made aspects of, of this book a little bit challenging. Talk to us about what was going on with your wife, uh, Clarissa. Yeah. We were about six weeks after the birth of our child, and, and Clarissa started having panic attacks. Uh, I'd never seen someone with a panic attack before, but it's a, it's a frightening thing. Uh, this overpowering sense of uh, a sense of uh, that you're going to die. This sense of something is drastically wrong. Um, I need to 
you know, my, my, my life is unraveling, uh, my world is unraveling, and I'm going to die any minute. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's actually a horrible thing to witness. And this was going on over and over and over again. And what we found as we, as we uh, sought help and, and talked to people and talked to experts was it's actually uh, not unusual for someone after, after birth to go through a post- postpartum anxiety or postpartum depression. Uh, so what, one of the things that was happening was that the levels of neurochemicals that she was able to use, neurochemicals like we've talked about, serotonin and, and oxytocin and things like that, were at a really, really low level. So she, she wasn't able to, to function properly. And what, I, what, I, what the challenge for me as I'm writing this book and writing about the, the glorious design of our bodies to be able to worship God and to, and to love others was that here, the, you know, in this sort of miraculous moment of, of birth and welcoming new life into the world, uh, we're also dealing with uh, my wife's body that had gone so drastically wrong. Uh, and I had to, I had to find, I had to seek some answers around. Well, how are we? What, what am I supposed to think about? Especially if I'm going to continue writing this book, what am I supposed to think about? Our bodies design when they go wrong. How am I supposed to think about God and suffering? And and these were these were pretty tough questions for a while. Digging into that, and I think it was important for the integrity of the book to do so. Uh, what were some of the conclusions that you were able to draw for yourself? Well, you know, you look at you look at scripture and uh, especially at Job and God doesn't really give Job a a terrific answer when he when he wants to know why he went through this suffering. Uh God essentially answers, "I'm God." <laughs> um and and one of the things that we see in Jesus is that uh even Jesus suffers. Uh, and not so much that that uh, God gives us an answer or, or the kind of explanation that we are seeking when we ask God about suffering, but but we see that Jesus has suffered with us. And so, as I looked, in, you know, in the in the physiology and biology, what what is what are we supposed to? How do we make sense of this? One thing I found was that one of the healthiest things that we can do when we are suffering is actually to help other people. Uh, I talked to somebody who had gone through a similar experience of panic attacks, and uh, and he went to a, a Christian psychologist, uh, not knowing that this this woman was Christian, and she said, "Okay, your your path back to health to health is going to be to help people." And she gave him a task every Monday. She she gave him a task of, uh, you know, go to the soup kitchen, uh, help someone across the street, do these very um, very mundane but very important actions of helping another person. And that was actually his route back to health. Uh, so our bodies are designed to to be helping other people, to respond to suffering. And I think that that's that was the answer for me that uh, when when humans were suffering alienation to from God, He sent His Son to die for us uh, in response. And and when when we are suffering and when we see others suffering, we're designed to respond and and alleviate that help alleviate that pain. We will find individuals that will, for example, during this time of year, uh, during the holidays, uh, suffer from one form or another of depression. 
that in more extreme forms can certainly lead to panic attacks similar to what uh, your wife is experiencing on a postpartum basis. And it's fascinating to note how often, as you suggest, that just the very idea of getting the focus off of how you're feeling and your experience and focusing on somebody else whose circumstances or needs are, are, are bigger or more severe, how that can entirely change your outlook and suddenly you realize, wait a minute, I'm here doing all of this and engaged in helping this person, and I'm no longer feeling depressed. I, I, I'm no longer having to deal with the panic attacks. And it's amazing to see the way God sort of builds into our system this ability to, to do unto others that oftentimes times be a form of worship as well. And in doing so, all of a sudden, the body has a way of, of healing itself, doesn't it? That's right. You know, one of the one of the interesting things uh, of research recently is that you know mental health is uh, you, your mental health is best when you're not really thinking about yourself. Um, when, as C.S. Lewis talks about, you can't go around uh, looking for how can I experience joy today. Uh, you experience joy when you're finding joy in the things that you do, uh, and in the same way, mental health. Um, you know, we are healthier as people. When we are engaged, when we are concerned not for ourselves, uh, but for those around us, those who we care about, those that we are living our lives with, our family members, our friends, uh, those, those in our church communities, uh, the people at work, that's really where we find meaning and purpose and then therefore a healthy life. Rob Mole, the book called What Your Body Knows About God, How We're Designed to Connect serve and thrive. Rob, thanks so much for the insights. The book, by the way, published by InterVarsity Press. You'll find it at Bay Area Christian Bookstores. Great holiday gift. Also through Amazon.com. Thanks again to uh, Rob Mole for being with us. Details, too, about his work on the web at RobMole.com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.